James is a physician who transitioned to clinical cancer research before taking up his current philosophical and theological studies at McMaster Divinity School in Ontario. Um, That's where I got my PhD myself, so I have a fondness for this place. His medical experiences kindled a deep interest in issues of medical ethics, and the title of his presentation is Gender Shifts and Influences on the Culture of Physician Practice. So join me in welcoming James. Thank you, and I want to particularly thank uh, the organizers for uh, giving me this challenge today. As Heather mentioned, I'm a Canadian. I will be giving data on both Canadian and U.S. settings, um, so I won't discriminate, but I have two passports, one U.S. and one Canadian, so take that as you wish. In this presentation, I would like to share my perspective on the influence of the growing number of women physicians in medical practice. In sharing this perspective, my claims will be based on both variably designed and mainly qualitative studies in the medical literature, as well as on personal experiences that either support or counter that evidence. When I entered my internal medicine residency in 1975, only about 10% of interns were female. The culture of medical training demanded very long hours of patient care and on-call service that was treated as a rite of passage as much as it was a necessity of the training experience. Being up all night on call and working a full day the next day was expected. In those days, the training focused on the objective findings of examination, good history-taking, diagnosis, and treatment. What was not formally taught included how to break bad news, learning when and how to tell the truth about a devastating diagnosis or a poor prognosis, how to empathize with patients, how to find out what preferences patients had and how those preferences affected the decision-making process. With that paternalistic biomedical model, the physician knew best how the risks and benefits should be balanced and what decisions need to be made in the best interest of the patient. Indeed, this model was often accepted and fostered on both sides of the physician-patient relationship. It is my contention that with the shift in the proportion of women in medical practice, the culture of medical practice is changing to reflect an infusion of both gender-neutral and gender-laden perceptions and behaviors that have enriched, not impeded, medical practice. And if I can find the clutch here, we'll be all set. Thank you. In Canada, over the past 25 years, women have increased their presence in health care such that women now constitute in excess of 80% of the health care workforce. Among physicians, the proportion of medical school graduates has increased about 9% per decade between 1960 and 1990, so that by the year 2015, it is predicted that women will make up to 40% of physicians overall. However, the proportion of female medical students varies considerably across the country, from 43% in Saskatchewan to to 74% in Quebec. As you can see at McMaster University, where I'm from, it's about 70% implying different regional rates of change in societal perceptions of women's roles. Similarly, in the United States, after a sharp rise in women medical graduates in the decade from 75 to 85, the proportion of female medical students has risen as roughly the same rate as Canadian schools. In disciplines such as cancer research and cancer care, with with which I'm most familiar, women have become leaders and award winners for both basic and clinical research as well as patient care. 
In fact, at the annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, which I attended in June of this year, the keynote speaker and the current president were women, and three of the seven special awards were given to women for both basic and for quality of life research. Coincident with this steady change, published studies began to show the importance of nonverbal communication, empathy, and other expressions of care that enrich and provide greater satisfaction in the physician-patient relationship. Empathy and compassion are emotive responses, the absence of which have been claimed as major deficiency of past biomedical models of care. These studies explored the personal characteristics of physicians inclined toward compassionate and empathic dispositions. In fact, one study even proposed a prospective tool to select medical students based on such dispositions. Suchman et al. developed a model for empathic communication wherein physicians can learn to recognize and respond to clues or what they call empathic opportunities, which, if initiated by a subtle or overt patient invitation, can lead to expressions of emotional concern and opportunities to openly acknowledge their burdens empathetically. The feeling of being understood by someone else is intrinsically therapeutic, bridging the isolation of illness and establishing a sense of connectedness that fosters a feeling of patient wholeness. Research in recent years has suggested that there may be inherent differences in how male and female physicians talk to patients. In addition to being more attentive to psychosocial issues, engaging in more emotionally focused discussions, and preferring a more egalitarian style of treatment, female physicians seem more likely to report empathic behavior compared to their male counterparts. Some studies, however, have questioned whether females are perceived as being more empathic through differences in socialization and social roles, or whether the perception is in fact a function or aberration of the measurement tools used. For example, self-reporting instruments may simply reflect a woman's greater willingness to report on empathic behavior. In one study, psychological measures of nonverbal reactions suggested no gender differences in empathic responses. Similarly, it has been questioned whether ingrained stereotypic thinking may influence observer ratings of empathic communications. Nikolai and Demel attempted to control for the impact of possible gender stereotypic thinking on participant perceptions of empathic communication expressed in simulated medical encounters. Hypothesizing that male physicians would be evaluated as being more empathic and less confrontational when they were labeled as female physicians, they actually found no effect of such labeling on the scoring of empathic communication. This suggests that female physicians may indeed have higher levels of inherent empathy. Such observations were strengthened by the fact that both male and female physicians participated in the same communication skills training. Interestingly, a confrontational communication style seemed to be even more linked to a masculine trait than empathy was to a female trait. In order to improve the power of perceived trends in multiple studies of gender influences on medical communication, Roeder et al. conducted a recent meta-analysis of 26 studies published between 1967 and 2001. Looking at 18 different communication variables, they found that female physicians engaged in significantly more psychosocial questioning than their male counterparts. Female physicians also demonstrated more frequent smiles and head nods and a greater awareness of nonverbal communication in general. Such active efforts to build partnership through inviting patients' opinions led to more patient disclosure. The authors are quick to point out, however, that male physicians can also show patient-centered communication and that skills can be improved by teaching physicians of either gender.
One practical consequence of such increased patient attention, however, is a 10% greater expenditure of time and a commensurate reduction in the number of patients seen, assuming the physicians of both genders have similar clinic hours per week. Thus, there is evidence that gender may independently predict for certain communication skills. It should also be noted that most, but not all, of these studies are qualitative in nature and are conducted by women. However, in my view, concern about methodological soundness and gender-specific investigator bias are offset by the consistency of the results and their validation by personal observations. In Canada, there has been ongoing concern that the practice of gender-related behaviors and choices may be contributing to shortages of physicians, particularly at the primary care level. A recent task force on physician supply in Canada showed that women constitute a larger proportion of younger physicians than their older counterparts. The report also shows that women work fewer hours per week than men overall, though this difference varies with age. These data have been used to support the contention that the increase in women physicians is contributing to physician shortages in primary care. Many of these suggestions come from the popular press, as we heard this morning, Dr. Deacon's presentation, with headlines such as, Doctors plan to quit or cut hours. More than half the number of new physicians are under, who are under 35 are women, from the Nanaimo British Columbia Press, and adding fuel to the fire a McLean's Magazine article implicating women physicians as a major reason, reason for Canada's acute physician shortage. A few months ago, such press prompted charges of sexism in an editorial in the Canadian Medical Association Journal by deans of prominent Canadian medical schools, four of whom were female and one male. In their no-holds-barred commentary, they concluded, to suggest that a physician workforce that more equitably represents women in the workplace is a barrier to access is frankly a sexist excuse for logic. In the US at present, there are predictions of shortages over the next few years as well. And as in Canada, gender differences have also been implicated as at least partially causative in this expected shortage. In a recent workforce study of the Association of the American Medical Colleges, Salzburg and Grover noted that female practicing physicians work fewer hours than male counterparts correcting for part-time status, and that younger physicians more often are part of two professional households, consequently choosing to work fewer hours than more senior counterparts. Almost parenthetically, the authors note that the trend toward more women physicians is, quote, encouraging from a social perspective. A greater number of women in medical practice does not, do not necessarily translate into satisfying careers, however. For example, between September of 93 and October of 94, the Women Physicians Health Study examined 716 variables in 4,500 women physicians, respondents, reputedly based on a national sample. Slightly less than half of younger physicians were very satisfied with their careers versus two-thirds of the older physicians. Those physicians with more children or less home stress were significantly more likely to be satisfied, as were strongly religious physicians. The authors noted that the latter physicians were more likely than less religious physicians to rejoin the workforce after childbearing. They speculated that such physicians may retain powerful motivations that are less affected by problems troubling other physicians and that exploring their spirituality might increase physician satisfaction. During the time of this study, the mid-1990s, sexual and gender-based harassment remained a problem, being associated with fatigue, depression, feelings of helplessness, and anger. Such stress could begin as early as the training program. 
Yaxi et al. have recently noted that early studies showed a lack of formal maternity leave policies, tendencies of residents to take short maternity leaves and discontinuing breastfeeding on their return to training. While subsequent legislative changes allowed for up to 12 weeks of unpaid maternity leave, some training program directors reacted by imposing greater enforcement of a minimal number of months of active training to qualify for board certification. The authors felt that strict restrictions should not force female trainees to delay childbearing or to forego critical bonding time with infants, suggesting solutions such as on-site childcare, exemption of competent trainees from making up leave time, providing paid family leave, and considering part-time training options. As part-time practices become more common, so have concerns about patient outcomes and satisfaction. However, a retrospective cohort study of primary physicians in 2003 showed that the work of part-time physicians resulted in no reduction in four patient outcomes examined and in significantly better management of diabetic patients and better cancer screening rates. In addition, patient satisfaction and outcome care costs were no different from those associated with full-time colleagues. Overall, part-time primary care physicians' productivity was 50% greater than that of full-time primary care physicians. What reasons are behind the current trend toward part-time physicians, the majority of whom currently are young women? Jacob said in all surveyed female and male dermatology program graduates to examine some of the factors affecting workforce choices, with a particular focus on how marital status and parenting influence these decisions. Conducted between 1998-2002, the study had a response rate of 66%, 57 of whom were women. While marital status did not affect the number of hours worked, women in general worked fewer hours but spent more time seeing patients in the clinic while men spent more time practicing surgery. Among those whose spouse also worked, only 2% of men reduced their hours because of their spouse's employment, while 18% of women did so. Non-parent physicians worked about the same number of hours per week regardless of gender, while male parents worked significantly longer hours than female counterparts. Male parents spent more hours per week seeing patients than non-parent males, while female parents spent fewer hours per week seeing patients than women who were not. Women dermatologists older than 50 years saw patients more hours per week than women 50 years and younger, but it remains unclear whether such work trends are age or generational in nature. After testing different variables in a linear regression model, the authors concluded that the combination of gender and parenting, at least in part, explains the differential in hours of patient care practiced per week. Now, how is the profession adjusting to the increasing influx of women physicians into the culture of medicine? McMurray et al. have suggested various creative strategies to ensure that physicians responsible for children, also aging parents or sick family members, participate in a full spectrum of professional activities, including distant telecommunication for meetings and educational activities, improved use of teams for call and coverage, and the use of smaller and more flexible working groups for decision-making. Even explicit reward structures for physicians who work part-time were suggested. Now, at the systems level, some healthcare planners in the Netherlands are developing work models to integrate part-time physicians into the healthcare services. Noting from previous studies that the quality of performance of part-time physicians is the same or better as their full-time counterparts, 
They explore the relation between health delivery system design and part-time work, explicitly focusing on enabling part-time work within a system. They concluded that part-time positions could introduce flexibility and even improve the flow and delivery of care through careful systems planning between physicians and administrators. However, feasibility is also related to the complexity of the care administered, the willingness of caregivers to work in a cooperative fashion, and importantly, the willingness of patients to relate to multiple members of a team wherein a traditional role may be shared by two or more individuals. In the U.S., Salzburg and Grove, as mentioned above, also noted that the incorporation of nurse practitioners and physician assistants, 60% of the latter of whom are currently women, to provide services previously reserved for physicians has, quote, so far allowed for continued expansion of the physician workforce to meet the needs of an expanding population, end of quote. Their prescription for meeting the anticipated physician shortage includes the teaching of interdisciplinary practice models with greater utilization of their services. Such new caregiver roles have become commonplace in the U.S. However, only the second physician assistance program in Canada will open next month in Winnipeg. An increase in the number of women practicing clinical medicine has already changed the nature of practice. Working fewer hours is becoming more common among younger physicians of both genders. But the evidence shows that overall, proportionally more women than men work fewer hours and that much of the time not going to patient care is devoted to child rearing. The demands of multiple life roles may well produce more guilt in assuming a part-time practice role and lead to burnout, resulting in what the recent McLean's Magazine article calls orphan patients. At very least, medical care is becoming a discipline that no longer drives physicians to care for others at the expense of their own family and supporting community. There's greater recognition that a normative medical work ethic assumes a place in a larger picture of life within which other roles and relationships are recognized and pursued. At very least, the increasing entry of women into the practice workforce has driven internal cultural change more quickly in a direction desired by younger physicians of both genders. Joseph Allen has articulated a view of covenantal ethics which sees relationships in medical practice and those defining marriage and family as special covenants. Special covenants are in regular conflict in our lives with all of us. As Christians, our ability to understand and decide priorities when obligatory actions of different covenants conflict is determined by our understanding of the nature of those covenants and by wisdom derived from the wisdom of Scripture revealed through the Holy Spirit. I think the greater responsibility of fulfilling obligations of multiple special covenants has historically been assumed by women. Yet this reality has also prepared the stage for all physicians to reevaluate the obligations and commitments outside of their profession. Given the historical inability of the patriarchal model to recognize and encompass other special covenantal relationships, we owe women who enter medicine a debt of gratitude for challenging that model and for reawakening the profession particularly to the emotional and empathic nuances of medical practice that enrich our relationships with patients. The trade-off becomes a need for patients as well to enter the discussion about the impact of engaging multiple caregivers with different skills when they seek medical advice and help. Given this reality, there is an increasing evidence that systematic adjustments to medical practice can be made to accommodate this change with possibly some improvement in rather than loss of the quality of patient care. 
Such adjustment may need to begin in training programs to prevent delays in family planning or the deprivation of parent-infant bonding. Such systematic adjustment will be aided and accelerated by the continuing shift of some traditional physician responsibilities to physician assistants and nurse practitioners, the large majority of whom are also currently women. In Canada, nurse practitioners are generally acknowledged as the key to newer models of interdisciplinary care. Nevertheless, lingering doubts about their ability to take on historically physician roles and become primary care providers are slow to dissipate. Greater consistency in regulation and training could help to alleviate this concern. Similarly, physician assistants will likely play a greater role in the U.S. while training schools are just beginning to emerge in Canada. Finally, there are also infrastructural issues that need to be addressed as the number of caregiver team members increase. Whether these new professional roles will clash or complement each other have yet to be seen. Nevertheless, liability and funding issues need to be worked out. In Canada, the main insurer of malpractice litigation vigilantly reminds members that communications, particularly laboratory and radiological reports, need to be reviewed and passed on in a timely way. The more caregivers in a team, the greater risk that action on such reports will, quote, fall through the cracks, with potentially devastating consequences for patients. However, I feel confident that the continued devolution of paternalistic medicine toward collaborative medical teams will result in better, more patient-attentive models of care that will lead to greater caregiver and patient satisfaction. Thank you. We have time for a few questions. Um, yes. Uh, one of the things that I expect to happen as we get more female caregivers is the standard of care, what constitutes good care. Is My wife is a doctor. The insurance companies uh, give her trouble because she prescribes less heart meds than her male uh, internal medicine counterparts. She does a lot of work with nutrition, counseling, better lifestyle, that sort of thing. Well, you, you've addressed a specific level of standard of care. Um, what is a, an event or what is a practice within the practice? I'm an oncologist. I can't put scopes down people's throats or in other places, which is a very payment-rich way that the medical system is set up. I spend a lot of time in patient, with patients, and remuneration is relatively poor compared to other internal medicine specialties. That's a part of the system, I think, that needs to be and is being readdressed in different disciplines. I think more importantly is, is the question of um, how much do men and women physicians, particularly the younger ones, organize themselves so they can make it clear that the way of practicing medicine needs to be readdressed and changed. So you brought up a very important point. One of the uh, so-called stakeholders in this whole change process also needs to be insurance agents. In, the, in Canada, where I practice and have lived for more than half of my life now, um, we have one insurer in terms of our liability. We have the government as the main insurer of most of the population with some private insurance. So we don't have it yet as much in Canada, but stay tuned. There are changes occurring in our neck of the woods, too. But thank you for that. Are you wanting to speak directly to this 
issue because there's other people ahead of you. So is your question directly relate, responding to this particular question? Okay, because there, there's one person ahead of you. So if that's okay, we'll go with the man in the red shirt there. Thank you for that very uh, informative collection of information. I have one specific question related to um, the conclusions that that uh, that you make attributing uh, empathic and uh, care to the increase in number of women in the medical profession, specifically because we might assume that the uh, women in medicine are younger, given the uh, demo- demographics and the recent increase in numbers, um, could it be possible that medical education is shifting um, to uh, to emphasize these uh, relational aspects of, of care, um, perhaps attributed to the feminist or justice-based approach in medicine? Um, but I, I'm just curious what your thoughts are about um, the source of empathy and whether those studies were controlled for provider age? Um, that's a complicated question, but I, I mentioned Sukman's study. Sukman is a male, or most of his collaborators. It was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association a few years ago. Um, and I, I, it was a real eye awakener for me because it was one of the first studies that actually gave, a, I thought, a very helpful tool for physicians to really incorporate understanding empathic communication with patients. Um, Yes, the training programs are changing. I think a lot of that change is due to the presence of women. Our medical school has 70% or more women now. In fact, it's very international as well in its representation. I'm an educator, medical educator, as well as a physician, so I've witnessed this over the past 20 years or so. And it's, it's my gut feeling, not from the literature, um, that that has played a role in that. I don't take away from that what male physicians contribute, being one myself, but um, I do think that there is an inherent sensitivity that women bring to medicine that we as males can learn from. I think that's in part for my part because I was trained in, quote, the old system. And uh, when you're trained that intensively, it sticks with you, and you have to, you know, see how you're moving along with the change as it occurs. Okay, we have time for two quick questions, so go ahead. Let me, let me just preface my question by just saying that I was a, a chairman of the Department of Surgery for 20 years and uh, trained more female surgeons uh, in my specialty than anyone else in the country. Having said that, I want to make a comment and ask a question. The real issue is, is medicine now becoming a job and not a life, particularly as it relates to surgery. Um, And uh, there are many people who believe that it is becoming a job rather than a life, both in Europe and here, and that that the preponderance of women in surgery is accelerating that process for obvious reasons, uh, dual responsibilities, et cetera, et cetera. In fact, there's a major publication which says now that you don't need to feel guilty about leaving your patient because of hours or whatever because you're not responsible anymore. The team is. You seem to uh, allude to the fact that you believe that that is true and that the quality of medicine will prevail with that approach. Did I interpret that right or not? 
Um, you interpreted my uh, conclusions correctly. I think that a multiple caregiver model is what will happen. Maybe not in surgery as quickly as in other disciplines. I can't speak to that because I haven't been over an operating table for some time now. Um, and I do speak from an internal medicine perspective in Canada. So I, I will bow to any enrichment of my perspective in that sense. Um, but I, I think it's, it's one of the problems that I have had over the years is that the slowest stakeholder is the administration. And the administration's failure to meet the needs of the physicians, whether they're surgeons or whether they're internists, um, has often been a major obstacle. And I think that needs to also be forwarded so that less time, more time for fewer patients, I think can be done. I think some of the, what I've read from the Netherlands and from other places shows that if there's a will, there can be a way. Whether that will happen over time, I don't well, know. I think you're, you're right. It will happen. Uh, at an experiential level, we're seeing a drastic change in the level of individual responsibility among the younger residents. They don't care as much. And I, I have to confess, I'm a part-time physician right now because I'm doing work in bioethics. Um, and I have to say, when I go to the clinic now, I feel more intensively refreshed to deal with the issues that come my way than I did in the old days when I was working throughout the week. And by the time Thursday afternoon came along already, I was getting pretty pooped, both mentally and physically. I think there's something to say about improved care. However, as I said, um, that's going to take some cultural change on the part of patients, too. And I'm, that could be a tricky bit of change because patients, as you know, aren't all the same either. And they're going to have different needs and come in with different demands. And we may see some obstruction there in terms of the change. Thank you very much, Jim.